Hello and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. And I'm Lisa Plain. Today we are joined by a man named Josh Duty, who is an expert in salary negotiation. He's a coach who works with experienced software developers to negotiate job offers for from big tech companies like Google and Amazon. He also wrote Fearless Salary Negotiation, a step-by-step guide to getting paid what you're worth to help you negotiate job offers and raises throughout your career. Josh is joining us from Gainesville, Florida. Josh, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Hi, all. Thanks for having me on. Um, appreciate you having me into talking. I'm looking forward to just talking through some some cool topics today. Totally. We're excited you're here. Very pumped. Yeah. So why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about your career journey that led you to where you are today? Yeah, um, it's it's pretty unusual um, and kind of, but it started really traditionally. So I studied. Um, Mike mentioned that I met uh, in Gainesville, where I went to the University of Florida uh, some time ago now, and I studied engineering, uh, computer and electrical engineering, and uh, immediately left under undergrad and went and got like a regular old kind of day job as an engineer um, at a big Department of Defense firm in Texas. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years and started to feel bored, basically. Um, I like engineering and sort of the discipline of engineering and problem solving, but the particular job in the particular firm that I was at didn't feel like they had a lot of promise for me in terms of long-term career potential. Um, and the reason is uh, sort of ironic in that I think for me, I could see that I would just be bored um, because there's such a fixed, stable career tra- trajectory, which I know that some people mm-hmm. listening to this might be like, what, you were mm-hmm. bored with a fixed, stable career trajectory? It sounds amazing. <laughs> um, but for me, I, I, you know, my boss actually literally kind of sat me down in his office one day because he could tell that I was pretty ambitious and wanted big projects and I wanted to get raises and promotions and more responsibility. And he drew just like a, a line on the whiteboard that was up and to the right. And he said, that's your career trajectory. That's how much money you're going to make over your career. And then he mm-hmm. said, you're a little bit ahead of that line right now. You've done really well. You got promoted pretty early. You got a raise earlier than other people would have, but you're eventually going to end up back on that line if you're here with us for a long time. And I think he was trying to like reassure me and calm me down a little bit. But what he did was basically <laughs> that was the day that I decided I wasn't going to work there anymore. Um, so uh, probably a few months later, I got a job back here in Gainesville. And I moved back, total career switch, um, decided to work as uh, basically a project manager, business analyst type for a small software company in client services. So the reason I did that was um, one thing that bothered me about the engineering firm was I was kind of behind the scenes and just working on, you know, widgets and fixing electronic stuff and testing stuff. And I wanted to work more on the business side of things and understand how businesses worked and work with customers and clients. Like I wanted to be out front kind of making business and strategy decisions as opposed to just taking orders and implementing them. Hmm. And so that became the kind of second phase of my journey. Um, Jermaine to our conversation today today is the fact that that firm was a small software company that made HR software to do performance reviews and goal setting and talent evaluation and that kind of thing. And so that's where I kind of first began to learn how companies manage employees, uh, evaluate their performance and compensate them. Um, and part of my job was to consult with companies on using the software that we made. And one of the components of the software was compensation planning. So I would literally consult with companies on here's how you use this software to compensate people, to plan compensation, to plan raises, to figure out how to divvy up equity and all that good stuff. And so that was kind of my first taste of how companies pay people. And from there, I I decided to get my MBA, uh, which was basically just a shortcut for me to kind of learn on the business lingo and how businesses work, um, because I kind of sensed that I wanted to be an entrepreneur eventually. I kept going down that path, Um, eventually was a project manager and then a people manager, 
um, again, in the same HR, it's called talent management or talent development now, but, but that space, um, consulting and, um, kind of simultaneously, as I kind of ended that part of my career, I began to negotiate my own salary. And so I had a sense, you know, my, my first job, I just took the offer. They made me my second job. I took a little bit of a pay cut. I took another little bit of a pay cut later because I had been laid off and I needed a job. And so I started to feel like maybe there was a better way um, for to, to manage those conversations about salary. And I felt like I was leaving something on the table, but I really didn't know how to resolve that or what my options were. And so I kind of did some reading and learned that I could negotiate salaries. And so kind of the last couple of day jobs that I had, I did negotiate salaries and got significantly more than I was offered initially. And so that kind of uh, merged really well with the fact that I was seeing behind the scenes how companies paid people, how they compensated people. I negotiated my own salary and then my last job as a day job was as a hiring manager and I was negotiating job offers from the employer side of the mm. table. And so I kind of got that 360 view of what it's like to negotiate job offers. Then eventually quit that last day job um, as I was writing Fearless Salary Negotiation, published Fearless Salary Negotiation and did, have been building that business for about five years now. So that's my kind of long answer, but that's my whole career arc, which is pretty unusual, but all the, all the pieces fit together so that I kind of end up where I am now in this unique place that, you know, nobody else is in as far as I know. That's so cool. Yeah. And it's really interesting for our listeners to hear too, how you went from engineering to HR to now starting your own business. I think it's really important for people to see examples of how you can be extremely successful in doing that. Yeah, there's not, I don't think there's one single career path. I mean, there can be like, like there was a stable kind of, I, I'm, I still know people who work at the company that I work for hmm. uh, at the beginning. They're on that career path, right? And they're like way, like, you know, more than halfway through that kind of career arc curve in that nice stable job. And they've got something going on, whereas I've taken some pretty significant risks. And so I think that it's kind of dependent on your own psychology and what you really want out mm -hmm. of a job and personal independence um, and, you know, time flexibility and all those things. Um, but you know, making, making those changes was the right move for me. And, um, as I made those changes, people would ask me frequently why I was doing that. And they've started bringing questions to me about their own change. They're like, I'm thinking about going to work for this kind of company. What do you think? And I could just kind of talk them through it. And that was also kind of the beginning of me publicly talking about and writing about salary negotiation and career management stuff is because I was having those conversations. I love it. So you've kind of alluded to the importance of salary negotiation, but why is salary negotiation so important? I think there are a couple of reasons. I, I, some of them are sort of, you know, very uh, tactical, um, dollars and cents, and some of them are more, um, I would say, sort of psychological. Um, the tactical ones are, uh, I always say that the best reason to negotiate is that there might be room to negotiate, um, mm. and you can't know until you try. Uh, and so if you use uh, uh, wise tactics and you're tactful about what you do and you're collaborative, then basically it's an opportunity for you to see, did they make me kind of a middle of the road offer, leaving themselves room in case I decided to negotiate or did they come out of the gate with their best and final offer? And both of those things can happen. And so by negotiating, you might find out that they made a middle of the road offer or that they were guessing. I mean, um, companies have a lot of data, um, but they still have to kind of guess what the number is to persuade you to join their team if you're a good candidate. And they're, they're guessing. And so they're usually going to guess maybe a little on the high side, but they might leave some wiggle room so they don't overshoot, but so that if they actually offer you something that you want to negotiate, that they can work with you and show that they're a good negotiating partner. And so there's an, basically an arbitrage opportunity there that's kind of built on the idea that they don't quite know what to offer 
and they, they mm. want to leave themselves room to work with you if you are the kind of person who will push back and negotiate, which most people won't. The psychological reason is more about understanding that when you are working for the company, that you know that you have maximized the compensation that you're getting. Um, I, I don't know about y'all, but I've worked at a couple of jobs where I would be working for a little while and then realize like, I don't think I'm making as much as I could be making doing this job. Mm -hmm. And that's a really kind of, um, it's almost pernicious in the way that it kind of gets into your, your mind and you think about it, right? You're, you're like six months in a year in and you're like, I really probably should be making more. I think that person over there is making more. And mm -hmm. it's a, it's a barrier to productivity and causes you to spend mental cycles thinking about the fact that you left money on the table and maybe you could be making more and how do you make more and should I ask for a raise and what if I went to another company? And, and so there's a psychological benefit, I think, to beginning the job and on day one knowing I didn't leave anything on the table. The compensation package I got was the best one that was available to me. And I made an intentional decision to accept that based on my own criteria that helped me determine that mm -hmm. it was the right decision for me to accept that opportunity as opposed to the default mode that most people go into, which is that seems like a pretty good job offer. I'll take it. And then you have all this kind of retrospective thinking that you do later that can be really challenging to get through because you didn't objectively evaluate it, negotiate it, maximize it when you started. That's so true. It's a huge morale piece. Yes, yeah. it, which is important. You know, as a hiring manager, I can see from the other side, right? You don't want people on your team who feel like they are not making what they are valued at, mm -hmm. what they should mm -hmm. be making. Um, it can be challenging to, to get them to be as productive and focused as possible because they're distracted by the fact that they know that they're underpaid. And so it works both ways. It's not just for employees to make more money, it's for hiring managers to know that person's not distracted. They know that they're being paid appropriately and I can just trust them to do the good work that I hired them to do. I know it seems so simple now that I'm gonna say it this way, but like the idea of it avoiding resentment in terms of how much you're being compensated, if you feel like it's not appropriate or not enough, the solution to that resentment is better negotiation skill. I like, to, that's what I'm hearing from what you just said. I'm like, duh, but I'd never thought yeah. of it like that until you just said all of that. Yeah, it really is. And I, I mean, I think, I think you can hear in the way that I talk about this, that I see this as a collaboration. It's mm -hmm. a win-win for it's, it's a positive sum game, right? You're not taking money from one person and moving to another. You're finding the right price in a marketplace, which is a different mm -hmm. sort of economic concept. But there's a price which is the maximum the company is willing to pay. And there's a price which is sort of the minimum that you're willing to accept. And, and somewhere in there is a price where you're both happy to make this deal. And what you don't want um, is to sort of accidentally make a deal that you're really not happy with or that isn't acceptable to you because you um, didn't negotiate or you just didn't know what your options were or whatever. And that can be bad for both parties. Totally. So I, I like the way that you said it. Like the, the solution to the resentment is a good negotiation up front. Everybody benefits from that because the person makes an educated, informed decision about accepting the best possible version of the offer. And the employer knows that they worked with the person to find that kind of equilibrium price that was the good price for them on this market to get them to do this job. And everybody can feel like I gave a little bit, I got a little bit, and now we've made an agreement that we're both happy with after a discussion. And now we can move forward and actually do the work that we're trying to fill this role to do. Who do you think, I mean, I think you've kind of alluded to this as well, but who should be negotiating salary? My answer to that is everybody. Um, and this, this goes sort of from, from people asking, oh, it's my first job out of school or my first job, you know, maybe even like during college or something like that, or, or, or as a high schooler, should I negotiate? And the answer is yes, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, there might be room to negotiate. So you should negotiate. And if you do it tactfully, so there's a big difference between collaborating, like I've said the word collaboration probably 10 times already, 
in our conversation. Um, there's a difference between collaborating and sort of demanding and putting ultimatums out there and making outrageous demands and you know pounding your fist on the desk and saying, I'm gonna walk if you don't give me this. That's not a good negotiation. So if you do that, there could be adverse effects. But if you do a nice collaborative negotiation, there might be room to negotiate and maybe they will be amenable to negotiating and you can't find that out unless you try. So everyone should negotiate is, is my philosophy. And I think it's the right philosophy because you never know what's available out there. And if you do it correctly, the, the most negative outcome is typically something like the company just stonewalls and says, no, we made your, our best offer up front. And now you've tested that as well. So they're not just saying, hey, here's our best offer, take it or leave it. They're saying, here's our best offer. You say, can you do better? They say, no, that was our best offer. And now you know that they were serious about that. Um, and so I think that everyone should negotiate to make sure that you have that kind of psychological piece that we talked mm -hmm. about earlier and mm -hmm. to make sure that you're just compensated the most you can be compensated for the work that you're going to do that's going to be you know the majority of the hours of your your waking life during the week working you want to make sure that you're being compensated as well as you can for that work huge what would you say are the main levers that people have to pull when they're at a negotiating table it'll depend on the situation i, I mean i think the main lever is the fact that you have received a job offer, which is powerful. Um, there's uh, a, a very powerful concept called uh, sunk cost or the sunk cost fallacy. Mm -hmm. Everyone, I think nowadays kind of knows that this exists and yet we're still very susceptible to it. I am all the time. I think, I think I'm only doing this because of a sunk cost, right? Um, I'm only doing this extra set of exercises at the gym because I've already been at the gym for 40 <laughs> minutes and I made the drive over here. I don't want to do them. Uh, and so it can be a powerful motivator, but the sunk cost is really powerful, especially in terms of like HR and hiring, because from the employer side, it's very expensive to hire someone. I mean, very expensive. If you think about like if they're flying you, you know, not, maybe not during the pandemic, but they're flying you in, putting you up in a hotel, bringing you into the office, they're going to take three, four, five of your peers, a couple of managers, maybe a director. They're all going to take time out of their day to interview you. I mean, this is thousands or tens of thousands of dollars they're investing to get to the point where they make you an offer. And so once they've made you an offer, that's a very valuable thing. And so I think because of that, it's it's imperative that you understand that they're unlikely to sort of remove that offer or pull back from it and that they're just in, as engaged as you are so that you should push forward and make sure that they're getting value for the money that they've invested and that you're getting value for your time that you've invested. That's huge. Yeah. And I, I'm sure most people don't think about the extreme costs of hiring people that you just just laid out right there. Yeah, actually, I just realized I only gave you one kind of point of leverage. So the sunk cost is one one point of leverage. Other points of leverage are the fact that you got an offer, which indicates that you have some sort of valuable skill that they can benefit from. Mm -hmm. um, and then another point of leverage could be if you have competing job offers, they can be useful, again, in a collaborative way. But like, um, it, for the big tech companies, which is mostly what I work with in sort of my my one on one service offering, um, they're very open to the idea that like another big tech company has made a competing offer. And if that competing offer is better, they will often just match it, just straight up match okay. it. Um, and so competing offers can be leveraged. I do not think they are necessary to negotiate. I do think that they can help. Um, obviously, a competing offer only helps to the extent that maybe it's a better offer in some mm -hmm. respect. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's better financially. It could be a better opportunity for you. You know, you may have a competing offer that pays a little less salary, but it saves you an hour each way commuting every day. That's a powerful motivator. And so you could say to the other company, hey, you're an hour each way commute. You're going to have to do better on salary because I have this other offer that's going to give me a better quality of life and it's going to save me 10 hours a week if I go take it. So they're not going to pay me more money, but they are going to pay me more 10 hours of my time every week. And that's valuable to me. Um, 
And then I think uh, the, the overall leverage of the fact that you know that they are trying to fill a position at the company, that's valuable information. And that you are now known to be a good fit for that position at the company. That's leverage too, because you, they have gone through an extensive hiring process. This is sort of a double dip on the sunk cost, but they've gone through an extended hiring process to try to find somebody to fill this role. They've invested a lot in that. And they've said, you are the person that we want to fill this role. And that's a lot of leverage. Um, if they've told you, we want you to do this job, that's, that's heavy leverage. Um, so those are the main types of leverage. There can be other types of leverage, like maybe a specific skill set, or you might have specific unique background in a niche that the company is hiring for, or, you know, um, valuable experience with the technology that they use that's kind of unique or something like that. Those are kind of smaller leverage points, but the big leverage points are the fact that they've made you an offer. They've invested a lot of money to get to that point, um, and other, and maybe competing job offers and, and, and some things like that. And just a really quick question off of that note, could, um, could a counter offer from a current employer be within sort of that field of play as you're negotiating an, an offer with another firm looking to, to go to that and leave your current job? That's a good question. So the answer, I think the, the easy answer to your question is technically yes. Mm -hmm. However, um, getting to the point where you would have that counter offer can be very challenging. Yeah. And this is something I actually caution people on. Um, it's something I'm asked about a lot. Um, I'll say things in our conversation that I'm pretty dogmatic about. This is something I'm less dogmatic about, but I am not a big fan of people going to their current employer and saying, Hey, I have a job offer from outside. I'm going to leave. What can you do to retain me? Um, I don't, I don't recommend that methodology. And the reason is that back to kind of psychological factors, it can breed a sort of resentment or reticence mm -hmm. on the firm's part, knowing that you are now essentially declaring yourself as a mercenary for hire to do this work. And so when you go to them and say, I'm going to leave, you know, let's say you just walk in and say, I have this job offer, you match it, I'll stay. There's a really good chance they're going to match the job offer. And in the short term, you're going to get a raise because you're doing meaningful work for them, presumably, or they wouldn't be paying you. Um, or And you also think that they want to retain you. So you must be doing something that's valuable to them. Because otherwise, if you thought they were just going to say, okay, go ahead and walk, you wouldn't be having this conversation mm -hmm. and probably wouldn't be employed there. So in the short term, they're probably going to acquiesce and they're going to say, okay, um, you know, you, you, you kind of have us in a bad spot here. So we're just going to, we're going to capitulate. We're going to give you what you asked for. But they're also now going to be aware that you could do that again at any time. There's nothing stopping you from six months later coming and say, I got another job offer. I'm really good at fishing for job offers and coming and holding you um, you know, to, to task for matching those job offers. And so what will happen, I think over time is your responsibility and your kind of internal leverage will erode as they move away from you for the really key projects that you would need to come to continue to move up in your career. So the way you move up in a career within a company is to take on more responsibility, bigger projects, more revenue, uh, bigger cost savings, um, start managing a team. But if they know that you might leave, uh, at any time and just come show them job offers that you're fishing for all the time. They're going to be hesitant. They're going to say, I don't know if I want to put Josh in charge of this big project because he, what if he's currently shopping for a job? And if he is and he finds an offer and he comes in and what if he makes us an offer that we can't match, then we're going to have to replace him and replacing him is going to be really hard. We would replace him with Tina over here. And so why don't we just put Tina on to begin with? Because as far as we know, she's happy here. We'll just let Josh do the other small stuff. And that way we're not really at risk in that way. So the answer to your question is yes. I think if you do have sort of a, a re retention offer from your current company, that that could be used as leverage in a negotiation with a new job. But the way that you would get that retention offer kind of goes against the way that I think that you should pursue that sort of internal raise 
and would make things, I think, particularly difficult for you if you actually had plans to stay at that company. Um, I, you know, to, to put a positive spin on that answer, I do think there is an appropriate way to ask for raises. I don't think it's necessarily to go get competing job offers, but instead to talk to your manager about the value that you're adding and to do a value-based approach to it. You already work for them. They know the work that you do. They know what they're paying you. And if you can demonstrate, hey, what you're paying me isn't aligned well with the value that I'm adding. Um, that might be you know, new unanticipated value from responsibilities I've taken on since the last time my salary was set. So let's talk about what the appropriate salary is for this role that I've taken on. I think that's a much more productive conversation than you know, showing somebody a competing job offer and asking for a, for a raise. Um, but again, it, that's more of a Josh philosophy type of thing than it is like a dogmatic, you know, scientifically proven thing. That's just my feeling as I was a hiring manager and as I've worked um, in management in other places that I, I think that your long-term career potential at a company is probably better suited by a collaborative conversation about a value-based raise as opposed to, uh, I'm going uh, to leave for this other opportunity. What can you do to, to help me stay? I think that's such an important point, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I would also just add to that that if you if you are looking elsewhere, often your salary isn't the only factor that's coming into play. There's probably other things that you're unhappy about that aren't going to change if you get more money. That's totally true. And I think also, I mean, I think that's a great point because if it's true and you're looking for other opportunities because you're somehow dissatisfied, not with the pay or exclusively with the pay at work, but with the job that you're doing or the management or something, there are conversations that you can have internally to, to try to address those. There are ways to, to get satisfaction um, on those kind of internal conflicts. And I think it's productive to try to resolve those internally if it's a company that you're interested in, what they're doing or the work that you're doing is meaningful, but maybe it's difficult to work there for some reason. I think it's worth starting by, can, I, can we resolve this? And if we can, maybe everybody is better off. Maybe there's some kind of friction there or um, you know, a company policy that's in place that makes things difficult or frustrating. Um, and also back to the kind of psychological benefits of, of having this kind of negotiation, right? is that when you do leave that company later, you can know I left because it just wasn't gonna work. I tried, I talked to managers, I talked to my peers, we tried to create better processes and it turns out I'm just not a good fit for the way that they do things at that company and I'm okay leaving it behind. Every so often we stumble upon someone whose like expertise is so deep and it's just incredibly valuable what you're sharing with us. I know I am learning a lot right now, so thank you, Josh. Oh, sure, that's, uh, that's very kind of you to say. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. So I, I get the feeling that a lot of people face barriers to going and having those conversations about negotiations, whether it's fear, whatnot. What do you find are some of the biggest barriers that people are facing? Yeah, I mean, I think fear sums it up the best, and that's why it's the first word in, <laughs> in the title of my book, um, and that people feel a very real fear around negotiating. I would say the, the point that they're the most fearful is usually around um, there's a really kind of sneaky salary negotiation tactic that companies use early in the interview process. And sometimes in the kind of the quote unquote pre-screen um, where they ask you for what your, what your current salary is, where it's legal to ask for that or what your salary expectations are. So, you know, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're talking to you about this role. Um, you know, if you do come to work for us, what, what would you expect to make in terms of salary? Um, and right away people feel fear. And the fear they feel there is, well, if I don't answer this question honestly or give them a number, I may lose this opportunity altogether. They might just stop talking to me. And so that's why it's kind of a clever technique because you're essentially seeing this person that you're talking to not as a negotiator, but as a gatekeeper for an opportunity that you're interested in. 
or you wouldn't be talking to them. And so that's one of the main places that people have fear. I think people also fear um, leaving money on the table. And so there's a weird conflict that people feel where, um, you know, if they're going to negotiate, but they don't necessarily know if they should negotiate or how to negotiate. And they're like, what if I accept this job and I don't get paid the most that I could have? Um, and then the kind of the other major fear I see is that people are concerned that the job offer will be pulled, which we kind of talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the main sources of kind of friction that people feel and why they don't negotiate is they're afraid of losing the offer um, or they're afraid of kind of upsetting the apple cart before they have a chance to get into the interview process. Um, and those are things that keep people from moving forward and from, from focusing on themselves and negotiating. And they're all things that most companies and recruiters are aware of are sources of fear for people. And so I wouldn't say that they stoke that fear, but they certainly give someone an opportunity to sort of feel that fear so that maybe they won't resist too much or negotiate too much when it comes time to negotiate at the end. What would you say is the best time to negotiate salary and maybe what you've just said around, I'm curious to know a little more about what you think in terms of that initial screen question as well. Um, Yes, like when is the best time to begin the negotiation discussion? Yeah, so I'll answer that directly and then kind of loop back on the on the the side quest that you mentioned. Um, the best time to negotiate is is essentially as late as possible in the interview process or the job offer process. Um, and the reason for that, when I articulate it, we'll go back. You'll see why you don't want to share salary expectations up front. The reason is that assuming you're a good candidate and you position yourself well and you present well. Uh, in your interviews in terms of your expertise and the value that you'll add to the team. As you continue to interview and you excel in your interview, the company will see more and more that you're going to be a valuable resource for them, a valuable member of their team. And they will be more and more aware that they need to make you a strong offer to persuade you to come join their team, as opposed to the minimum offer that you will accept to join their team. And that's, uh, it sounds like maybe I'm using semantics or splitting hairs, but those are very different numbers most of the time. A lot of times they're thinking at the beginning, that's why they're asking you, what are your expectations? They're hoping for a low number. They're looking for a bargain most of the time um, because payroll costs are usually the biggest cost in a company, if, if not the biggest, one of the biggest. And so if they can save 10% on every employee they hire, that's a lot of money. Um, and so they're usually starting from what's the lowest number we're going to have to say to get this person to join the team. But what you want to do is continue to persuade them as they interview you that they should not be thinking that way about you because you're unique because you've positioned yourself well, you're uniquely qualified, you're tuned into what their needs are and how you can help them. So by the end of the, the interview process, they're not thinking, you know, what's the minimum that it's gonna take, but they're thinking, how much do we have to offer this person to persuade them to join our team? Because this is a person that we want on our team for sure. That takes time. And so if you allow the negotiation to happen early by, for example, giving them an expected salary that you'd like to make before you have a chance to persuade them, then a couple of things can happen. One is you could overshoot on that salary and they might think, oh, this isn't the right person for us. Like this person is too expensive. And ironically, they may actually be wrong about that. Maybe as they got to know you, they would realize you're not too expensive. You're actually you know, undervaluing yourself, but you're such a good uh, candidate for this role as you understand it, that you would be worth the number you said, but you might end up disqualified or kind of moved off into a different um, hiring pipeline or something like that because you said too big a number to start with. Or you could say a number that's too low. And now, of course, you're feeding into them trying to figure out what the small number is that they can mm -hmm. offer you, the minimum they can offer you to join. And so that's just too early in the process. There's too much work to be done as a candidate, as somebody who's going to interview. And so the later that you can defer the salary conversation, the more leverage you'll have. And the leverage will be in the form of persuading them that you're going to be a valuable asset for their team. 
and that they need to think about what they have to offer you to get you to join their team as opposed to the minimum that they can pay you and have you accept their job offer. Do you have any recommendations for how to defer that question? I do. Uh, and I'll share a link to, I think it's the longest article that I've written. It's, <laughs> it's very detailed about this, but my general philosophy is, um, so there are kind of two questions that you'll be asked your current salary, um, which in this, in the U S um, there are some States who have essentially outlawed this. Uh, and so it's not even allowed, uh, which is fine with me because I tell people not to answer the question anyway. Uh, and then your expected salary, which is definitely not outlawed and is, and is often used as sort of a guidepost for them. And so I have kind of a two-part answer and I'll see, I'll see if it's still, a, usually it's right at the top of my mind and I can just kind of let it go. Um, but the answer to, so they'll ask you, you know, hey, what's your current salary and what are you hoping to make if you come work here? So that's two, two, the two questions in one. And I think a good answer for that is, is something like, um, I really don't have a number in mind. Um, I prefer to focus on the value that I add in this role and um, I want this move to be a big step forward for me in terms of both responsibility and compensation. And I look forward to hearing what you think when we get to that stage. So you're doing a lot of signaling there. One of them is I'm not going to give you a number. And so that's obviously very important. But you're also telling them, um, even if I did tell you what I'm currently making or what my expectations are, I'm telling you I want this to be a big move forward for me in terms of responsibility. So I want to do more than I've ever done before. And I know that I can add value here and compensation. So I want my compensation to trail along with that responsibility to track with it. Um, and so that way you're telling them an answer to their question that does not give them numbers, but also makes it difficult for them to come in to continue to push back because you've told them, I don't want to talk about that. I don't really know. I want to focus on the value that I add. And then, you know, you let me know what you think when we're, when we're to that stage. I love that. Wow. Yeah. Our listeners can't actually, uh, obviously see us doing any of this, but I'm putting my hands on my head and going, <sighs> <laughs> like, that is what's happening to me in this episode. Too much information, I'm sure. But hey, that's uh, that's our own unique take on this. At least mine. Very cool. That's the great thing about podcasts is if, if it's too much information, you hit pause, go do the dishes, you come back later, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and and give it. You know, listen to the last five minutes again or something. Cool. Um, how do you know when it's time to stop the negotiation? When is it just like maxed out? I can't, I can't move any further in this conversation. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that's actually, um, uh, Lisa, back to your fear question earlier, something people are afraid of is like pushing too hard or asking for too much stuff. And in fact, I, I frequently will see kind of one of the biggest sort of tactical negotiation mistakes that I see is people asking for too much stuff. Um, either they start wrapping in stuff that isn't really even negotiable anyway. Um, like, um, that the bonus structure of the company or something like that. Like most of the times when they tell you like your performance bonus is X percent of your base salary, that's not really a negotiable thing. Um, they might have different tiers for that based on like what level you're in at the company. If you're an executive, you might have a higher bonus structure or something, but it's not really negotiable. So they'll wrap that in along with like three or four other things. They'll ask, you know, can I get continuing ed money? Can I get reimbursed for gas driving to work or, you know, and, and all of these things I'll ask for them all at once. So <clears throat> that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see tactically and the, the way that you handle that is by asking for one thing at a time. And so now, you know, Mike, back directly to your question, how many things should you ask for? I think the answer is probably about three. Um, and this is not really science, but it's based on my own experience. Um, and I find that, you know, people ask me when they hire me, how many times are we going to go back and forth with them? And I'm like, honestly, probably like two, maybe three, four would be a lot. Um, and the reason is that, first of all, as a candidate, you should be prioritizing the stuff that is most valuable to you. Um, usually, if you were to make a list of like the five most valuable things to you in a negotiation, 
what you would find is the most valuable thing down to the least valuable thing to you. If you flip that list upside down, it's the most costly to least costly. Um, right. So, so the company is thinking, you know, if I want more salary, that's one of the more costly things back to my payroll comment earlier. Right. And you get all the way down into like vacation time, that's a little less costly for them. Um, and so you want to ask for the thing that's most valuable for you, because if you give them an, a, a list of five things, they're going to pick the least valuable thing, give it to you. And now you're kind of stuck because they, they've given you something. So instead, mm -hmm. I recommend asking for one thing at a time, start with the thing that's most valuable to you. And also I would say the thing that you think might have the most flexibility, right? So there's a lot of cases with clients that I work with where um, the most valuable thing to them is probably base salary. Um, but that's also often one of the least flexible because they're already kind of near a cap for base salary and these big tech companies like to pile on equity and sign on bonuses. And so usually we'll look at the salary, figure out if it's already near the cap. And if it is, we'll say that's the most valuable to you, but I don't think there's room to negotiate. So we should move to something that has room to negotiate and has a lot of value to you like equity or sign on bonuses. So you prioritize the things, you ask for one thing at a time. And I think you should have a plan to ask for two or three things. Um, I can send you another link on kind of a script on like what that looks like. I have a little script that I give clients um, that's in my book. And basically all it's a very simple way of knowing that you ask for something, let's say it's base salary is the, the most common one, not kind of setting my clients aside. You ask for more base salary um, than what they offered. And now you've created sort of an, I call it a negotiating window. So you know that they're going to respond somewhere between their initial offer and your counter offer and base salary. You know, they, they offered 50,000, you asked for 60,000 their response is almost certainly going to be somewhere in the fifty dollars to $60,000 range. And the nice thing about that is it's actually a pretty tight $10,000 range. And so now you can kind of plan for what am I going to do if they come back at 50? So they stick at 50. I, they said 50, I asked for 60. They came back and said, no, we're sticking at 50. What am I going to do? What am I going to do if they come up to 55? What am I going to do if they come up to 59? What, they, what if they say 60? And then you can say, well, some of those, I'm going to ask for more salary. They came up to 55. I'm going to see if I can get them to 58. Some of them, they didn't come up at all from 50. So I'm going to say, well, obviously, you know, danger Will Robinson, I'm going to get off of the salary thing and see if there's something else I can ask for. So what's next on my list? I'll ask for uh, a sign on bonus or something. And, and so now to come back to your actual question, I think you should have two or three things in your pocket that you can ask for. That might be more salary. In some cases, it might be a different thing like uh, stock options or equity. It might be vacation time. If that's negotiable, it might be a sign on bonus, which is usually the last thing that I'll ask for. Um, and once you've gone back and forth two or three times, usually you've really narrowed in on kind of the best version of the offer. And so like, for example, in these, you know, the salary equity sign-on bonus, which are the three most common, um, your goal is to figure out what's the maximum salary, what's the maximum equity, what's the maximum sign-on bonus that I can get here. After that, you might be able to continue asking for things, but at some point you also have to signal to them that if they say yes, or they give you something that's agreeable, that you'll stop asking them for stuff because otherwise they're not gonna give you anything. So if, if you say, hey, $60,000 and they go, okay, 60 and you go, great. Also another week of vacation. Now they're thinking, well, how many, how, well, how long is your list? Because <laughs> if I say yes again, are you just gonna keep hitting me up for stuff and how much is that gonna cost me? Whereas if you say, if you can do 60,000, I'm on board, I'm, I'm good. Then you're signaling to them, the, the negotiation can be ended now by you. You have the power to mm -hmm. end the negotiation by saying yes to my 60 and I will not ask for anything else. So you do that a few times up to two or three, and usually you'll you'll narrow in on essentially the best version of the offer. Technically, there are probably other little bits and pieces that you can negotiate for, but at some point you just, like I said, you're collaborating with them, right? You're not trying to wring them dry. And so I think that it's a good idea to have two or three things in mind to try and maximize those things in the order that is the most beneficial or, more, or valuable to you. It sounds like there's a bit of preparation that goes into this. 
what is the process that you take your clients through to prepare for a negotiation? So the first thing I do is I tell them, um, usually by the time my clients talk to me, they're being asked for salary expectations and they don't know what to say. And so most of them, the, one of the reasons they find me is they're trying to figure out how to handle that question. And they are aware it's, it's sort of like, um, all of a sudden they just become aware that there's this negotiation thing happening to them and they just realize it. They're like, wait a minute. And like some people, this, this doesn't occur to them. Most people, I would say it doesn't occur to them. But when most, when the clients that come find me are asked, like, what do you hope to make if you're working here? They, all of a sudden, like the light bulb goes and like, go, wait a minute, I think I'm negotiating right now. <laughs> and then they say, and I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know how to do this, but I think I just found myself in a negotiation of some kind and I don't know how to do it. And so the, then they'll find me. So, you know, they'll Google, um, you know, how to how to negotiate an Amazon job offer or something, and then they'll they'll kind of come into me. So the first thing I tell them is don't share those numbers, and I, we've kind of already been through that, so I won't rehash it. But I'll also tell them uh, they'll they'll often be very reticent to sort of not give a number there because again it, the the gatekeeper thing that I mentioned. And so I'll also tell them, listen, this might be the most difficult part of your entire negotiation. Withholding your salary expectations could be harder than the actual negotiation that will come later when they make you an offer. And so that's the first thing we do is I, I tell them, don't share your salary expectations or current salary. If they make you an offer, thank them for the offer, ask them for time to consider it, and then let's talk. Uh, and that's when we will actually start our work uh, and we'll begin to strategize. So from there, what we'll do um, to plan is, is first, I spend a lot of time with my clients trying to figure out kind of what their priorities are and what their story looks like. I'm a very um, sort of story driven uh, negotiator in that I want to, I, I spend an hour with every client on our first, I call it the kickoff call. And I ask them to tell me about the process of them coming to this job offer. How did you get in touch with this company or did they find you? Did you have a referral? How'd the interviews go? What kind of feedback did you get in the interviews? What have the managers and people that you've said um, or spoken to said to you and about you? What do you know about this process? So what's your story? And what I'm trying to figure out is when I'm the company looking at that person, what do I see? Do I see an invaluable resource that I have to hire at any cost? Or do I see somebody who's going to be a pretty good contributor and I wouldn't mind having them on my team? Because those are very different sort of negotiation scenarios. So once I have their story, then we start doing the kind of tactical nuts and bolts negotiation stuff, which is I can take that story and kind of turn it into, okay, um, you know, you've told me what your priorities are. You've told me what your story looks like. So I think that we should focus on this aspect in the negotiation, salary, equity, sign on bonuses, uh, or whatever that is. Um, and then here's how aggressive I think we should be. Um, and here's how we're going to present this case. Uh, and um, then I start to get their feedback on how they feel about that. Usually they're pretty nervous about it. And we'll kind of talk through my plan because I think it matters a lot what their intuition tells me about the plan that we put together. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our prep is, you know, I listen to them, I get their story. We talk about what their goals are. It's very important to know what are you trying to get out of the negotiation? Do you have a minimum that you will not accept a job for less than in the negotiation? What are you at? What are your aspirational goals? How does the company perceive you? And then we can begin to kind of build a tactical strategy that is focused on, you know, we're going to ask for this much and then we're going to ask for this much. And if they ask for this, we're going to give them that. And so it's, it's, then it becomes very, very tactical once we've gone through the kind of storytelling and strategic. Um, the overall plan is we're going to counteroffer, probably through an email, almost always through an email. Um, and then we're going to wait and see how they respond and we're going to react to that. Sometimes, depending on what our counteroffer looks like and their story, we can actually kind of pre-plan and I'll actually kind of pre-make a script for them. So I'll say, here's your counteroffer, go ahead and send it. Also, here's a script. So if the recruiter calls you up, you can be ready to go. Um, 
will plan for the kind of latter stages. So once you've, once you've done the actual counter offer, you're like 80% through the negotiation. Most of the heavy lifting is done. And now it's about refining and figuring out what's the max version of this that we can get. Can we get this other thing? Can we get a signing bonus and that sort of thing? And so then we'll kind of navigate that final phase. I call it the final discussion where you kind of work through with your recruiter, you know, what are the, the details, the finer details of the, of the compensation that you're going to get. And again, we'll go back and forth two or three times and hopefully then we'll both feel my client and I will both feel, yes, we have the best version of this offer. And then we'll talk about, do you want to accept this offer? Is this, is this good enough for you? Um, have they done enough work to persuade you to join them? That's so valuable. Just having someone to go through that whole process and, and lead you through what that looks like. Incredible. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's interesting because uh, what I just described to you is the process they use for my clients. And then my book is really sort of like a universal overarching process that will work for anyone. And the irony, of course, is usually what you would do is you would go through the, bes the, the bespoke one-off process a bunch of times. And then you would say, okay, what can I extract from this and turn into like a one-size-fits-all process that anybody can use? But for whatever reason, I did it backwards. And I actually wrote the one-size-fits-all process and then turned it into a bespoke offering um, mm -hmm. where I take that process and then modify it for every client. So every client engagement is not only different, but quite a bit different than every other client engagement. Um, some of them were asking for huge counter offers and some of them it's a pretty modest counter offer. Um, and the way that we approach it is different. Um, so it's, it's a lot of fun to do that sort of prep um, and to get to know each client individually and figure out what's the best path forward for them in the, this negotiation um, while basing it on kind of the foundation that I built when I, when I wrote my book. You have provided a lot of value to the people listening to this episode. And I definitely would suggest just off of what you've said that people go and check out your book. That sounds pretty amazing. Um, we have some questions that we like to ask of all of our guests that come on the show. And I'm just kind of noting our time here. Uh, and I want to honor yours. What is the most fun you've had in your career? Um, I, so if we're including... I'll ask you, are we including my current career or are we saying like my day job career? Yeah, no, we can include okay. the current career. Yeah. So the most fun I've had in my current career is that over time I've, I've managed to level up and work with more and more senior people that are going to big tech companies. And it's a lot of fun to, for example, counter offer like seven figures more on equity Whoa. to a big tech company. Um, there's something it's, and it's, it's fun, not just because it's like, we're talking about big numbers, but it's fun because it makes me nervous too. Right. And so the, I think the fun part of my career is that I am along for the ride with my clients. And when they get outstanding results, I get an outstanding result because of my fee structure. Mm -hmm. But I also experience kind of the highs and lows and the ups and downs and the nerves that they're experiencing. Um, my job, of course, as a coach is to sort of manage the nerves on their behalf. Um, but it's always a, a charge for me. Every, every client is different. And every time we send a counter offer, I get a little bit nervous and I feel like, Ugh. <laughs> like what's going to happen. So, so the fun for me is in doing each new kind of engagement and occasionally getting that really big result. That's like, wow, I can't believe this person is making that much more money going to that company. Um, so the fun for me is in just kind of like the fact that I have a process and a playbook, but also that I get to use that playbook on unique situations all the time and that each situation is different. I always learn something. I always feel a little bit nervous. And so I never am bored in my job. Um, so that's kind of a broad answer, but that's what's fun about it for me is it's, it's consistently different um, for every client and also a little bit scary. Very, very cool. Um, okay, you were talking about how you have taken a fair number of risks compared to some of your uh, contemporaries from your earlier career. 
what would you say is the biggest risk you've taken in your career and how has it turned out? Yeah, that one's pretty easy. Um, I'll try to give a short version of this answer, but it's funny because I, the biggest risk was definitely quitting my day job in 2015. So I had a day job. It was going pretty well. I really liked the company that I was working for and the team that I was working with. But um, the company didn't love that I was sort of writing a book on the side and sort of promoting it on the side. Um, I, I think that was a little short-sighted by them. And part of the evidence was that I quit like really quickly after that because uh, it wasn't affecting my job performance at all. But the risk that I took was I had saved up a, a runway that I thought would be good for about 18 months. And so I was like, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to publish this book. But my plan in taking that risk was to publish the book to make side income so that I could build a software company that I had been working on. Mm. Um, of course, about three months after I quit my job, I realized <laughs> what a, it's really hard to generate a business that you can live off of by selling books and products and stuff to help people, even if it's really, really valuable stuff. And so I had to make a, a choice. Do I want to actually grow that business or do I want to stick with the software company that I wanted to build? And I, I decided that I was more interested in helping people negotiate salaries than I was in the software that I was building. Um, so I, so that was kind of the secondary part of that risk is quitting it. But the risk was quitting my day job without really, I mean, I didn't have anything. I had nothing. I hadn't published my book yet. Um, my little software company was generating like a few hundred bucks a month in revenue. There was nothing. Um, and I had an 18 month runway. Um, and, and so, the, you know, by far that was the biggest risk that I didn't, I didn't really have sort of a parachute there except going back to a day job later, which mm. I, I came pretty close to having to, to pull the ripcord on that parachute, but never actually did. Wow. Yeah. can only imagine that. Awesome. It was scary. I, <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So the last question we have for you is what is the best piece of career advice that you have ever received? Yeah, this one actually is, uh, this is super easy for me because I, one of the first emails you'll get from me if you join my, my email list is the, the best career advice I've ever gotten. Uh, it's the subject. So um, at my first engineering job, when I was leaving, I put in my notice um, and uh, my manager knew that I was leaving. And I think he, I, I had only worked for this manager for a couple of months, um, but I think that he understood very well why I was leaving. And that is that I wanted to sort of, I was ambitious. I wanted to have control over my career. Um, I wanted to make more money, but have a lot more responsibility and a lot more agency. And I think he saw that I was the type that was going to continue to really push hard on those things. And so his advice to me was this um, about money. He said, um, your first job is your first job. Everybody has to have that first job. You got to know how to get up at 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. and show up at work on time and what it's like to go out to lunch every day or bring a bag lunch and all this stuff. Um, you know, what to do with a paycheck every two weeks. That's your first job, how to have a manager, how to be responsible for stuff. Um, your second job is where you get real career experience and your third job is where you get paid. Um, and for me, that, that turned out to be true even in, in the day job world. And I think that was really helpful. That extended um, my kind of timeline by a number of years because it gave me, it, it calmed me down. It helped me understand that, you know, kind of like my manager had told me at the company, like, you're going faster than everybody else now, but you're eventually going to regress the mean here. He was telling me, it's okay. Take your time. You're going to gather skills over time. You can stack those skills later and they will pay off. But at first you need to understand that there's just some basic stuff you have to do, the fundamentals, the blocking and tackling to learn what a career looks like. And so uh, just to summarize, first job is your first job. It's where you learn how to have a job. Your second job is where you get actual experience that can be valuable later. And your third job is where you get paid. Love that. I was thinking about my own career as you were saying that. I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it maps pretty well. I mean, obviously it's not going to be true for every person, but I, I find that most people who read that email or talk to me about it go, 
yeah, that's that is that's what happened to me. Yeah, that's how it works. Um, so and it's, it, it, it's 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 pretty true. So I I appreciate that. Uh, I think about it often. Um, and like I said, it's one of the first emails that I that I send people when they join my newsletter because I think it's super important to think about that. Very cool. Very neat. So where can people find more about the work that you're doing? Good. Um, so you can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Josh Duty. Um, that's the kind of most public place and a place where I'm easy to interact with. Um, and then fearlesssalarynegotiation.com um, is where I have, you know, kind of all of my, you know, how to negotiate, how to interview, how to ask for raises and, and other kind of career focused articles. Um, and then, like I said, uh, I'll send you all a couple of links to articles that I've alluded to, like how to answer the salary expectations questions. Um, but Twitter, I'm at Josh Duty or fearlesssalarynegotiation.com are the best places to find me. Cool. Awesome. We will definitely throw those links into our show notes for sure. Highly encourage our listeners to go check that out. You've been an incredible guest. You've shared a ton of valuable information with us, and you're also just a really great, easy-to-talk-to guy, Josh. So thank you again for all your time today. Thanks. That's that's very kind, and I appreciate y'all having me on, and, and it was really fun to talk to both of you, Mike and Lisa. Cool. We will call it a week there. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. Our guest, Josh Duty. Go check them out. Become a fearless salary negotiator. Talk to you soon. Bye for now.